Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is Jeremy Held, who is the Managing Director of Bow River Capital. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, Jeremy, tell us some about yourself and, and what made you get into, you know, the finance industry. Yeah, no, thanks for the question. So, um, you know, I, I live in Denver, Colorado, and I have to say that because I'm a, I'm a walking billboard for the, the city of Denver and the state of Colorado. It's a great place. So for listeners out there, if you want to come to Colorado, I think the word's out. Um, people are coming here, but it's, it's, it, it's a great state. But I've, you know, I've lived here my whole life. And, and my, my reason for getting into finance is a little bit interesting. It was sort of inauspicious beginnings. Um, I went to the University of Colorado and uh, I graduated and I was, I was working at a job uh, and a buddy of mine asked me to go work at his finance firm because they were looking for a Spanish speaker. It was, a, it was an investment firm that had a fund that was geared toward Latin American investors, and they needed a customer service rep who spoke Spanish. And I, I lived in Spain my junior year in college. I had spent some time living in Costa Rica. And so I got the job um, at the firm, you know, answering questions um, in Spanish and sort of my, my broken Spanish, but I think I got through it. And ultimately that, that fund ended up not making it, but it was my entree into the finance world and I was fascinated by it. And I just thought that it was so interesting just based on the variety of everything that, that you had to look at. It was sort of a combination of current events and math and there was sort of an art and science to the investment part of it. And I really looked at it as being at, you know, at the leading edge of innovation of all the you know, interesting things that happen usually there's an investment that started somewhere a few years earlier. And I just loved that, that, that being a part of that. And that's what got me in. And that was, that was 25 years ago. So um, I've been in it ever since. Right. So, you know, looking at, you know, kind of where you are now um, and looking back, you know, if you had it all, all to do over again, what differently would you do? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a great question. And I think there, there's sort of two things that jump out, you know, maybe just try to be a little more patient. Um, you know, you get out of school, you get started in a job and, and there, there's a beauty to this too, but I was just trying to run through a brick wall hundred miles an hour. And, and maybe because I did that for a long time, I realized maybe it, sometimes it helps to take a step back and, and go through the door and, and you don't always have to run through the brick wall. It's, it's hard when you're in your twenties to sort of learn that. So I don't even know if I could have done it differently because you almost have to learn those lessons to learn the patience to, to get that sort of wisdom. But I think the other piece is just to find a mentor. Uh, mentors have been hugely important to me in my life. And, and I found some great ones in my 30s. And I think if, if there's only one thing I could have done differently is maybe, you know, seek that mentor out um, in my early to mid 20s. And maybe it could have you know, shortened the distance between two points and a couple of points in my career. Yeah. I, th I think back in our 20s, we think we know it all and yeah. we don't realize we don't know it all until we get to our 30s. And then, you know, then that's the time that we, we seek people out. That's for sure. Yeah, it's true. You know, I, I, I was thinking about, you know, what I would have done differently. And, and my son's 16 and I look at how he sees the world and he definitely thinks he knows everything. 
And so, you know, 22 and 24 is not far removed from 16. So you can see why people, you know, make those mistakes early on. Right, right. So, you know, talking about mistakes, what, um, what mistakes are you seeing clients make? Um, you know, obviously before they come in and, and you help them fix them, yeah. but what, what, do you, what are you seeing the, the um, investors, the mistakes that they're making? Yeah, well, I think it's hard. You know, we're we're a private equity firm, so you know, I I work at Bow River Capital, and we make investments in private companies, and we think there's massive advantage to that, massive utility. You know, the fund that I that I run, we we allow investors to make investments in diversified private companies, and I think in the public markets, there's a general understanding and familiarity with public companies, especially the well-known ones like Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft and Google Google and Apple and Disney and so forth. I think the biggest mistake clients make when it comes to private markets is there isn't as much familiarity and they don't have as much of an appreciation of risk. So we will have clients that come to us and say, oh, we're, we're familiar with private markets because our neighbor is asking us to invest in this early seed stage venture capital uh, company and then they'll look at something else that might be, you know, uh, a profitable business or a fund that's diversified across hundreds of profitable biz businesses. And they might look at those two investments as being the same because they're both private. And so I think not truly understanding the risk associated with certain private investments is probably the biggest mistake they make. And it's, it's understandable and maybe even justifiable because there isn't as much information out there. And so... They, you know, they can't look at, you know, people know what Disney does. People know what, what AT&T and Apple do, but when it's private, there isn't as much information. And so I think the biggest mistake is, is this underestimation of some of the risks associated. And we try and help people with that. Yeah, so, so how do you help? And I was going to lead in perfectly there. So yeah. how do you help them understand that there is more risk there? Yep. You know, a lot of it is just sort of education and then helping them understand the ecosystem in the market, right? So, you know, in our investments, we're, we're you know, we're, we're providing exposure to sort of medium-sized profitable businesses that happen to be private. And what we tell people is that there's, a, there's an evolution of a company from, you know, an idea to early stage to venture capital. And that, that, you know, usually you have a seed stage and then you go into a series A, B, C, D, sometimes even E. Then you go into what's called growth equity, where it's a firm that might be a proof of concept. They're, they're revenue generating, but not quite profitable. That's more growth equity. And then really, you know, buyout or private equity is an established firm that's already profitable that might need capital to fund an acquisition or to pay out early founders or to you know, um, pursue a growth strategy, but understanding the spectrum, just the way, you know, you know, a hundred years ago, people sort of thought about stocks and bonds. And then that, that market got bifurcated to, you know, large cap stocks and small cap stocks and, and international stocks and growth stocks and value stocks. And so I think the world today still looks at private market investing as private market investing. And we're trying to help them understand how granular you can, you can look at it and that, Venture capital might be high return, but it's also high risk. And later stage buyout companies might be lower return, but it's also lower risk. And just helping them understand that spectrum, because a lot of times clients think about return first, but don't think about the risk. Yeah, and I, I think that that's something you know that, that's really important. And um, you know, as we talked earlier, there there are a lot of bad professionals in in every industry, and I think that. 
that on the financial advising side of things, I think that many times um, the advisor's worried about getting the return because they're trying to keep the client and they're not really talking to the client and finding out what is their risk tolerance and then yeah. trying to, to get them in because I'm sure you see that all the time. Somebody comes in and you're talking to them to figure out what their risk tolerance is and you're like, yeah, no, this isn't a good place for you because you know your, your tolerance is right. way too low. We, we can't help you. Yep, no, you're exactly right. And I think especially in private markets because a lot of it's unregulated. And, you know, if you think about sort of mutual funds and ETFs, they're registered, they're, they have to be filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, there's certain mandated diversification, they have to have an independent board of directors. And the private markets in many cases can sort of be the Wild West. And so it's not just the investment risk, we have to think about the firm risk and the regulatory risk and legal risk. And so we try and put a framework around there. And what we've, what we've done is we've taken all of those regulatory elements that apply to the mutual fund world and the public world, and we've wrapped that around private investments. So we can give people the same comfort they would get if they were investing in a mutual fund, but with private investments. And I think it's really important to understand those, those risks. Right. So what are some other differences in you know, what you're doing as compared to you know, the typical you know, investing in, in stocks and bonds and mutual funds? Yeah, well, I think what's what's amazing and what's happened, you know, sort of our, the trajectory of our careers is the investing landscape has, has changed. Um, you know, when I started in the business in, in 1996, and if you fast forward to today, there are half as many public companies today as there were in 1996. Mm -hmm. um, the companies that are still public today, and, you know, we, we know five of them in the U.S. that are over a trillion dollars in size, right? Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. The companies that are public tend to be much larger. And so when I started in the business, if, if, if clients wanted to invest in small companies, in medium-sized companies, and in large companies, you could do that all through the public markets. Now, because so many companies are being taken private, because so many more companies are staying private longer, the private markets are growing three times faster than the public markets. If investors don't have an ability to tap into that private market exposure, they're missing out on what we think is an important part of the investable universe. Yeah. We think it can be very complimentary. We think they're just like there are in the public world, there are poorly run public companies and poorly run private companies and great public companies and great private companies. So just being private by itself doesn't necessarily make it good or bad, but there is a really growing universe of private companies that we think are investable and, and, and could be uh, value additive in a portfolio. And we just try and help people understand the risks associated there. In the, the, the public market, there's, you know, you got your robo advisors and do it yourself and, and so forth. Does the private market have something like that also? You know, it really doesn't. And it's, it's a great point you bring up because what, what robo-advisors have really done is they've helped democratize access to investing, right? And, and sort of, you know, in, in my generation, you know, if you wanted to invest, you sort of had to find someone to help you get that access. Right. Right. Now, you know, my 16-year-old my and my 14-year-old, and, and they have a hard time doing anything that's not on their phone, right? And right. so robo-advising yeah. really facilitating that. Private markets are, are, are a few years behind that, right? You think about most private market investments are still done in a fund structure. Most private market funds 
you have to be a qualified purchaser to invest, which means you have to have $5 million of net worth to invest in a private fund. Most private funds are a million dollars, $2 million, $5 million minimums. And so what we've tried to do is really break that down. Um, you know, we've, we, we allow investors to, to invest in our fund at $50,000 minimums. So we, we, we go lower than a million dollars. Um, and you don't have to be a qualified purchaser where you have to have $5 million in net worth. And we're essentially trying to really open up private markets to a wider range of investors because that's the biggest gap. If you look at an average portfolio for a, a retiree or, or a, a 401k plan, and you compare that to what a wealthy family or, or, or a large pension plan has, it's exposure to private markets. So we're trying to just bridge that gap, but you have to change some structures and, and, and lower minimums and make things a little bit more diversified to allow that to happen. Yeah, and that's what I was gonna ask you about, it was the minimums because you, because because again, because it is private, um, you know, how, I guess, that the 50,000 threshold that you're talking about, how did you guys, you know, come up with that? Is it different for, different uh, companies that you guys are working with, or is that just kind of like, okay, across our board as a, as a company, this is the minimum to, to get in the door with us? Yeah, what we want to do is we said, you know, a lot of um, clients came to us and they said, you know, we can invest in private markets for our 20, 30, $50 million family clients, whether it was CPAs or it was wealth management firms that had those clients, but they said, where we really need a solution is we have a lot of families that have been sort of working their whole life. They have, you know, one to $2 million of investable assets and they'd like to participate in the private markets. And maybe public markets are going to be 85, 90, 95% of their portfolio. And we said, well, for a million dollar client that wants 5% of their allocation into private markets, $50,000, we want to go as low as 50. A lot of strategies out there go down to 500,000 or 250 or 100, but we said, this really needs to be open, you know, to someone that wants 5% yeah. and a million dollar nest egg. I mean, that's great that you guys are, are providing that because, because again, you know, diversifying, um, is some people are willing to take that risk knowing that the rewards could be high, but it's nice that, that you're able to get in at, at a lot smaller uh, price than, than you would otherwise. Yeah, I think that's the biggest, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions in the private markets too, is that, you know, you can go out and buy an S&P 500 index fund. People understand that they're getting access to 500 companies. Um, every mutual fund is required to own at least 20 stocks. That's just one of the SEC and IRS rules. You have to have at least 20 stocks. A lot of private funds, they might invest in four companies over seven or eight years. And I think investors don't understand, even if they can meet the minimums, just the concentration risk you're taking in just a few companies. So being able at a low entry point to still provide that same diversification investors are associated with mutual funds, we thought was a really important hallmark. That's great. That's really great. Um, once, once somebody becomes a client of, of you guys and they, and you're working with them and stuff, what, 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 you know, common mistakes do they make? Do they, you know, rushing the return, um, you know, what, what usually happens there? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the mistakes they make is, is it's it's sort of, you know, it's not only sort of when they become a client, but oftentimes before and sort of when they're looking at different options is, is again, investments are all about risk and return. And if there wasn't risk, there there wouldn't be return. And so I think 
so hyper focused on just what the return is and not what the risk is. And so I think that what's really important for us and what we try and tell people is that, look, if you're investing in risk assets and that might be public companies, private companies, it might be public real estate, private real estate, anything that you're expecting to generate a significant return above cash, above inflation, there's going to be risk there. And you have to think about the general market conditions that are favorable and unfavorable. We're in this incredibly buoyant environment right now. We have low interest rates. The economy's booming. It's somewhat bifurcated in terms of, you know, who's doing well and who isn't. But, you know, risk assets are performing great. And what we have to talk about with clients is, okay, what happens if we go into a recessionary environment? What happens if interest rates aren't low? What if inflation does pick up? What if growth slows down? Because even though those time periods are few and far between, you know, for people that, you know, remember back to 81 with the, you know, the recession and it was really kind of energy driven and right. 89 and 90 that was savings loan driven or 99 in the tech bubble and 08 financial crisis. And, you know, um, you know, 2015 and 2018 was choppy. And of course the first quarter of 2020, these, these, ha these, these occurrences are, are infrequent, but they're painful when they happen. Right. And making sure the clients understand that we're doing great now. And these are the conditions that led to us doing great. You know, the market is very buoyant. The, the economy's growing, rates are low. But if those things change, it can be, it, it can turn the other way. Doesn't mean that means you need to sell your investments, but just to understand and have that perspective. If someone does invest, you know, with you guys in the private market um, and they decide that they want to get out, um, yep. is there like, you know, um, certain timing that they're allowed to get out? How does that work? How is that different than public market? Yeah. And I think that's, what's great too, is that we do have the ability for investors to, to still participate in the private markets, but also have some level of liquidity. So if you think about the traditional investments, you have stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, those are daily liquid. You can buy those every day and you can sell those every day. Right. The problem with most private market investments is they're set up in seven or 10 or even 12, 14 year partnerships. And so that's a big gap to go from daily liquid to a 10 year partnership that's illiquid. And so what we've done is we've tried to bridge the gap and, and we allow for, for redemptions every quarter. And it doesn't redeem your entire uh, portfolio every quarter. We allow 5% of our fund to be redeemed every quarter. So as long as, you know, um, market conditions are normal like they are today. Most investors can get their money out in one quarter, but we tell people this is a long-term investment. You should think about two to four quarters. It might take you that time to, to get your money out. And it's really ideal for someone that says, I want to be invested in public markets and I have a portion that needs to be daily liquid, but I don't need a hundred percent of my portfolio to be liquid daily. I'm willing to have 5% of it or 10% of it be liquid on a quarterly or semi-annual or annual basis, because I think the overall risk-adjusted return will be better if I have a portion that isn't daily liquid. And so we offer this nice intermediate option where there's more liquidity than a private fund, but less liquidity than a traditional mutual fund. Right. Now, you know, obviously we're, we're going through COVID and we, we thought we were on, the, on our way out and it seems to be sucking us back in here. How... Um, how has that affected your guys' business? Yep. But what's been interesting is we have um, 
we've had a benefit from COVID. There's, there, there's, there's one positive and then there's one thing that's a challenge. Um, because of what's happened with COVID and, and, and the, I think the public markets recovered so much more quickly than a lot of people thought, more, way more quickly than I thought. And what's happened is a lot of clients have told us, wow, the public markets have really ran and we'd like to diversify. We're, we're not really interested in putting money in, in bonds at one and a half percent. We're not really interested in, in going to cash. We don't want to take all of our chips right. off. The How do we still invest in risk assets, still invest in equities, but maybe not at the valuations we're seeing in the public markets? And so we've actually seen more interest than I think we would have seen had the public markets not been so frothy in our view. Now, the flip side of that is that you know the, the, the private markets are not as overvalued in our view as the public markets, but they're still expensive. And so it's made it harder for us to find new opportunities. We've had to invest in more defensive assets like healthcare and niche manufacturing. We've had to invest in more preferred equity where we're more senior to the common equity of a company and, and just behind the debt. So we've had to be a little bit more creative in, in structuring downside protection um, because this environment is, is expensive to, to put uh, assets to work. Now, how does how does somebody do business with your company? I mean, you know, you, you, someone has their their broker and that's doing all their their public stuff. Do they tell their their broker to call you guys and talk to you, or are they able to go directly to you guys? Both. So you know, we we have you know in, in our fund that invests in private markets, we've got about one hundred and fifty million dollars in assets in the fund today. We've got over two hundred investors. And I would say about half of them just come to Bow River directly. Um, about half of them go through a financial advisor. Um, we're available on all the, the custodial platforms, so Schwab and Fidelity and, and TD Ameritrade and Pershing. Um, and it's really sort of, you know, if they have an advisor, it usually comes through the advisor. And if they're just an individual, they come to us direct. And so they can, you know, information is available about, you know, our funds on our website. Um, it's it's bowrivereevergreen.com. So www.bowrivereevergreen.com um, or Bow River Capital. That's that's our sort of company website. And then the strategy website is Bow River Evergreen. Um, but there's there's a, a variety of ways people can find us. Right. Now, um, I think I read that you guys are, are working on a new fund, I guess is what it, what it is. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, we have our traditional um, sort of evergreen fund that has the lower minimums, that's more diversified, it has the monthly subscriptions, it has our liquidity option, but we also are launching uh, a real estate fund this year, and that's more in a traditional private equity format, but we think it's really interesting because it it takes advantage of two things that, 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 that we see happening in our market, which is people are moving to the Rocky Mountain region, and we've been investing in real estate in the Rocky Mountain region for, for 20 years, and this was something that was happening before COVID and it just got accelerated with COVID. If you can sort of work anywhere, people have said, I, I wanna work in Colorado or I wanna work in, in Utah or in Idaho or, or, in, or in Bozeman, Montana, which is now being called Bozangeles because so many people are moving from right. California to Bozeman. But that's creating opportunities in real estate. And the other thing is that, and I don't know if if, you, if this is the, the same way in your house, but in my house, I feel like an Amazon package shows up every day. And it used to be that if you ordered something online, it got there in a week. And then it was five days. And then it was three days. And now it's next day. And Amazon's working on same day. Right. And when you do that, 
you have to change your logistical framework from an industrial and warehousing standpoint. It used to be that big retailers would set up a million square foot industrial warehouse at the corner of I-25 and I-70, and they would do eight of those around the country. Well, now if you are gonna do next day delivery, you don't need to have eight warehouses that are a million square feet. You need 80 that are 100,000 square right. feet. There's a lot of these smaller industrial warehouses that are popping up really outside almost every population center. And so that's what we're focused on is, you know, how do we take advantage of two trends, which is people moving to this region and people wanting next day delivery in that property type. And so that's what we're focused on in that fund. Great. I mean, so uh, if the listeners haven't got this yet, um, you know, you can go over it again. I mean, there's a big difference between what you guys do in the private industry compared to to the public industry. And like you said, different risk and, and different rewards with it. Um, I could you know, kind of talk to you all day about this because I find it fascinating. Um, what are, what's, what's something that I haven't asked you that, that you wish I had? You know, I think what, what, what we wish people would ask us, you know, more often is when, what's the downside? When can things go wrong? And, and maybe it's just because we're in this environment that, you know, it's been pretty placid since 09. And yes, we had a really sort of steep and then, you know, a pretty vicious recovery last year. Mm -hmm. When things are going well, people just sort of think about, okay, this is gonna, this is gonna happen in perpetuity. But really saying, you know, what are the downsides here? What happens if we're in a recessionary environment? What happens if growth slows? What happens if leverage is too high? And so I think those are questions that I think are really important to, to ask. But I think the other thing that, that, that people don't recognize and don't think about as much is, you know, having investments that have a long-term perspective that match their investment time horizon is really important. So as we talked about earlier, you know, the public markets, you know, they're daily liquid, right. but most people come to a financial advisor or a wealth manager because they're putting together a 15-year plan or a 20-year plan or a 30-year plan. And so we think there's often a disconnect between people saying, hey, I want a 30-year investment plan, but I want to make sure all my assets are, are, are you know, daily liquid and available. And we think there's a little bit of a disconnect there. So right. really having a conversation with people about how do we match up a portfolio that really matches your life goals and your lifetime horizon and then let's make sure we focus on on the downsides. Those are the things that people typically don't don't cover, but that, that we try and help them with. Right. I mean, again, going going back to you guys ask the questions and kind of get quiet and and listen. And I think that that's something that that's really important because uh, too many people want to tell somebody what they want to what they think they want to hear instead of actually helping them get to where, where they want to be and, and reaching their goals. That's for sure. Yep, it's true. So, Jeremy, if somebody, I mean, you, you you touched on your website a little bit earlier. If somebody wants to talk to you or advisor hears, you know, our, our um, podcast here and they like what they hear, how can they get in touch with you? How can they work with you? Yeah, best way is just to, um, you know, go, go go to our website, either either the firm website, which is Bow River Capital, or it's our, um, our, our Evergreen Strategy website, which is bowriververgreen.com, or they, they can call us. Um, I know we have an 800 number, but I can't think of it off the top of my head, so I'll, I'll give our local 303 number. I, lo I love 303 because I've, I've, I've been a 303. Um, I've had a 303 number uh, now for 47 years. So 303-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-8-
881-6135 is, is the way to reach us. Um, and yeah, we, we, we'd love to talk to people about, you know, we think that, that the private markets are fascinating. We think that they're growing. We think that in 10 years, it will be completely mainstream for investors to have investments in, in, in public securities and investments in private securities. And we think that we're in the early innings of this, this evolution. Great, great. Jeremy, I really appreciate your time today. I think that uh, the listeners are, are definitely uh, learning a lot uh, based off of what you've told us so far. Great. It was great. Thanks for having me, Gary. Sure. So again, today our guest was Jeremy Held, who is the Managing Director of Bow River Capital. Thank you. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>